This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 25th of January 2012, when what was now GDPR was proposed. It wasn't called GDPR as such at the time. It was proposed by the European Commission. So, as we've said before on these podcasts, there's effectively a tripartite system to bring GDPR onto the statute book, if you like. If you haven't checked out the Trial of the Century, the Enron Trial podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, I hope you will check it out. This podcast series focuses on the Enron trial, not the collapse of Enron. And I have guest Lauren Steffi, who actually covered the trial. So it's some great insight. Also, it draws a direct line to corporate governance and ESG. In this episode, we celebrate the 10th anniversary of GDPR being proposed. We take a look at the evolution of the law, what's changed, what's been improved, and more. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Jonathan Armstrong, partner, founder and partner at Cordery Compliance. And we are back for another episode. Today, we thought it might be interesting to take a look back at not at the anniversary of the enactment or the go live of GDPR, but back to when it was proposed some 10 years ago. So, uh, Jonathan, with that long winded introduction, first of all, welcome back. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks for having me back. So, Jonathan, I thought maybe you could uh, talk to us about how, or rather, what final GDPR was as opposed to what was originally proposed, and then maybe how it's even changed or morphed since it came into law. But what was the original kind of uh, impetus around GDPR? And and we have to hark back to a time of yore where there was an entity called the European Union, which included... Uh, the Kingdom of England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. So perhaps with that uh, caveat, you could uh, help us understand where did the original impetus for a GDPR come from? Yeah, happy to, Tom. And it does seem so long ago, doesn't it? It was the 25th of January 2012 when what was now GDPR was proposed. It wasn't called GDPR as such at the time, and it was proposed by the European Commission. So as we've said before on these podcasts, there's effectively a tripartite system to bring GDPR onto the statute book, if you like, and the Commission proposed it, then it was considered by the European Parliament and effectively by the nation states, and the three of them um, almost negotiated the provisions of GDPR over a two, three, four-year period until it was finally enacted. That was two years before it went live. And I I think that uh, I paused and looked sort of 10 years later to see whether GDPR had, if you like, lived up to the hype. I think one of the first things that people concentrated on in 20. 12 was um, the uh, expectation that fines would be pretty high and that it would lead to severely increased penalties. 
this was one area where the original proposals changed and then uh, there were higher fines proposed, lower fine levels until the party settled on uh, 2% for some infringements, 2% of global annual revenue and 4% for uh, higher level infringements. And of course, in the first couple of years of GDPR enforcement, nobody got near any of those fine levels. And a number of people said, if you like, that GDPR was a, a damp squib and that fines wouldn't happen. I think they've been proved to be wrong over the last 18 months, two years or so. We had about a billion euros worth of fines in 2021. And 2022's got off to a significant start. We're well over a quarter of a billion worth of fines. Uh, and we're only in February as we record this. So I think fines have certainly uh, kicked up a pace. But of course, it's not all about fines. We've seen some data protection authorities be much more subtle in their enforcement. And I think one of the areas that people didn't concentrate on too much at the start was these other things that regulators could do. So, for example, the ability to dawn raid organizations like they did with uh, the uh, uh, Facebook's offices in Ireland, the ability to ban data transfers happening like the Portuguese authorities have done with Cloudflare, and the ability to order processing to stop and records to be destroyed like the uh, UK regulator did with HMRC, a UK government department. And sometimes those other things can be more consequential. Obviously, we've talked about this before, the fact that Ireland intervened in Facebook's proposed dating service meant that Facebook could not launch. And then the pandemic hit, which was the gold rush for uh, online dating. So Facebook missed out on that uh, opportunity. And there's a couple of other things, uh, Tom, that I might just highlight. First of all, I think there was this uh, thought that GDPR was really about data security. I mean, that's proved to be very much wide of the mark. Transparency is a key theme of GDPR. Most of the high fines have been for transparency rather than for data breaches. Obviously, some investigations into transparency have come about because of a security breach. The H&M case, for example, springs to mind, 35 million euro plus fine. Uh, it's a security breach to start off with. Then the regulators look at whether people should have been holding those records. But um, but transparency is front and center for a lot of enforcement. And I guess one of the other concerns I wrote about, I wrote an article the day uh, what is now GDPR came out. And I'm loath to quote from something that I wrote, Tom. But one of the things I said is, the new rules will still be enforced by the independent data protection commissioners in each country and by the national courts. This is likely to lead to inconsistencies as in the pre-GDPR system. Fines vary across Europe for relatively similar incidents. And unfortunately, that's definitely been the case in that, um, you know, 10 years since that it really is inconsistent across 
Europe and it's hard for organizations to predict what regulators are going to do, particularly for a U.S. corporation, for example, where it has operations in one or more uh, uh, European countries. As far as enforcement is concerned, Spain is out in the lead with about 397 fines. That's about 35% of all known GDPR fines. But at some, but the, the other end of the spectrum, some regulators have hardly got going. So Croatia, for example, seems to have only fined two unnamed companies an undisclosed amount of money, and then only in 2020 and 2021. And there's a real difference in the amount of fines being levied. Of Spain's 397 fines, I think only eight have been over a million euros, and the majority are well under 60,000 euros. And in contrast, some DPAs like the UK have fined higher amounts, but infrequently. And that's relevant, of course, because that was one of the promised benefits of GDPR. GDPR was always meant to be a balance between the uh, extra powers that individuals had, but a reduction of red tape, a reduction of bureaucracy for corporations. And there were all these predicted cost savings. The European Commission said that business would save 2.3 billion euros each year because GDPR was much more streamlined than the earlier system. And I don't think that's true. I don't think uh, anybody that I know has saved any money at all. And I've done an unscientific straw poll over Twitter that, uh, if anything, confirms that. So many businesses are spending much more money since GDPR came in, not only with improving their processes and procedures, but also dealing with nuisance claims, trivial claims, vexatious subject access requests, right-to-be-forgotten requests. And there's a lot more bureaucracy involved in the post-GDPR regime than there was in the pre GDPR regime. So um, I, I think in some respects, uh, GDPR has uh, lived up to some of the promises. It's certainly raised the bar. It has been a model for other jurisdictions to follow with GDPR-like legislation. But many of those promises, particularly those of cost savings for businesses, just haven't been uh, as good as the paper they weren't written on. We'll be right back with more Life with GDPR after a word from our sponsor. One of the things that uh, I've heard you talk about before was the right to be forgotten. And at least one mm -hmm. sector or one segment of those proposing that were concerned about young girls or other minors who may have done something foolish and posted a picture of themselves or others, clothed or unclothed, and have to live with that in the virtual world forever. And so there was one school of thought that uh, the right to be forgotten would be uh, help that situation as it may come up. You argued that that was perhaps best handled via other remedies, but that the right to be forgotten has now morphed into something very different that was originally envisioned. And I was wondering if that seemed to me to be a pretty good example of something that 
there was a clear vision, even if that vision was perhaps misguided, but that it's morphed into something else. And I was wondering if you could maybe take us through that evolution. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. There was a perception at the time that some U.S. social media businesses were monopolies or quasi-monopolies. And, of course, the commission had looked at uh, antitrust legislation to hit some of those uh, corporations. And in some respects, some of the provisions of GDPR were, were almost antitrust measures by disguise. I think there was an element of that in the right to be forgotten proposals. There was an element of good intent, I think, as you said, to protect you know, teenage girls who had pictures on the uh, internet that they now regretted. But I don't see any of those type of cases. I don't see anybody saying, you know, I had a college photograph that I'm now ashamed of and thank goodness the right to be forgotten exists because that's been removed. What I do see in our practice and when talking to people is the super wealthy using uh, right to be forgotten to clean up their reputation or to remove some of their uh, contacts from the public domain. And I did predict that pre-GDPR. I had meetings with uh, the MEP who led the... um, uh, the, the 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 crime part of the uh, the crime committee at the European Parliament to discuss these concerns. Of course, when we were discussing this, where we were just in the aftermath of Bernie Madoff, and you could see the ways in which uh, those with criminal intent can cover their past. You know, asking banking uh, organisations to forget about transactions that might bring suspicion back to the uh, head of the um, enterprise. And we've definitely seen that with high net worth individuals. We're seeing that at the moment, for example, with uh, individuals whose background is tied to the Russian administration. People uh, are expecting that Russian sanctions might be extended. And there are some with ties to the Russian administration, using right to be forgotten to try and sort of put an eraser through the contact lines with people in the Russian administration because they're fearful that they may become sanctioned individuals if those connections are known. So we've seen people with high-priced lawyers use the right to be forgotten. We've also seen at a more mundane level employees who have been uh, sanctioned or dismissed from organizations try and use the right to be forgotten to move to a new employer with a, a supposedly unblemished track record. And in many cases, you can resist right to be forgotten requests, but you have to be organized to do so, which again gets back to my point of the real burden on a lot of corporations both in administrative times and financially, that GDPR has brought. And there's been some um, kind of shaking out. But do you see maybe two or three uh, countries with really top-notch regulators, both in terms of bringing enforcement actions, but also in dealing with uh, companies um, or uh, regulators that you see as a little bit more aggressive at this point? 
And that's why I think the appeal, one of the reasons why the appeal success rate is relatively high. Some of these regulators are not experienced in bringing major investigations and are not used to the principles of natural justice, etc., which has allowed people to be successful in some appeals and allowed others to successfully reduce the amount of fine from the regulator's uh, original notice, notice of intent. So I think for many organizations, uh, they are considering more appeals than in other spheres, partly because of that inexperience of some regulators. And of course, there has been infighting as well amongst regulators or between regulators and their governments. You know, Belgium, for example, has had uh, quite an unseemly dispute over the independence of some in the regulatory body and whether that stands up to scrutiny. Ireland, for example, has been criticised for its uh, uh, lack of action uh, by many, and that's obviously key. Uh, to EU-US relations, given that Ireland is the seat of many major US corporations for GDPR purposes. So I think it's still, in some respects, uh, a, a position of evolution as far as data protection authorities are concerned. Some of them, of course, are not that well-resourced. And some regulatory organizations were funded by a small registration fee that they levied pre-GDPR. And essentially, the ability to take that fee was outlawed uh, by GDPR coming in. So regulators were given more tasks, more responsibilities, and less stable income. And that's never a good mix. And I think at the time, you know, how regulators are funded, particularly funded to do investigations properly, was an open question in 2012. I think it's still an open question 10 years later. So, Jonathan, I've heard you talk about on this podcast and in other forums, uh, the UK, Great Britain or English regulator, uh, depending on where you're sitting today, uh, the ICO. And it seems to me that I have heard you uh, or rather, your overall remarks seem to be uh, a consistency from pre-2012, consistency during uh, GDPR, after GDPR went live, uh, during uh, the UK still remaining in the European Union and now, and that uh, the ICO regulators are professional, and, and you obviously may disagree with some positions they take, but it's an agency that you can work with and... Um, have have had a fair amount of experience in data privacy and data protection matters. I guess, number one, w would that be a fair assessment? And number two, could that be almost a model for other uh, countries in the EU? Yeah, I think yes on both counts. And of course, th there was almost like a partnering system where the UK and, and other uh, well-resourced authorities were sharing resource and mentoring some of the smaller uh, authorities in the EU. And I think it is a shame, and I've heard people you know, in the remaining EU express concern that the UK is, I think, the biggest agency left the club, if you like, and they were well-resourced. So they would lend 
resources for particular investigations or just this sort of mentoring type relationship to to others in the in in the community so i think it's a shame that the uk has left but i do think your characterization is is correct i think the i think as a general rule that is my experience with the ico i think i would sometimes disagree with the results of their investigations but i wouldn't deny in any of those that i've been involved with that they um haven't followed proper process and been respectful and listened and i think that concern is felt by some for some of the uh, other agencies and particularly i think some of them are under real pressure you know there is a quasi league table now and as i said countries like Croatia that are at the bottom are under pressure to get results. I think one of the other pressures that we've seen is the commission proposed this system called one-stop shop, where effectively one authority would act as the lead regulator and would sort of report back to the others. That system's under real strain. I think partly it's under real strain because it's perceived that Ireland isn't doing enough. So some authorities like France, for example, have thought of constructive ways in which the one-stop shop doesn't apply to allow them to take action because they think Ireland is sitting on its hands. So I think that whole harmony piece uh, and consistent enforcement piece and one-stop shop was always going to be a really, really tough thing to pull off partly because different regulators care about different things but i think uh that that has been a real disappointment in gdpr there isn't that much consistency there's a varying quality of regulators well jonathan unfortunately we're near the end of our time for this episode but i i'm almost sure that we will continue this conversation as gdpr continues to evolve thank you tom This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Life with GDPR, and I hope you'll join Jonathan Armstrong and myself again on this podcast series. I hope you will check out the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Presidential Leadership Lessons for Today's Business Leader, which has premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network. Also check out Design Thinking in Compliance, where Karsten Tams and myself continue our exploration of how you can use the social engineering tool of design thinking to increase the engagement and effectiveness of your compliance program. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.